All right. Good morning. Uh, just in case we have about uh, 50% more people than we had a few minutes ago, there is a um, cookout for Face Stories on August 19th at 5.30 p.m. at the Shamball Home, which is 11326 Rolling Springs Drive in Carmel. Um, and so let's pray before we get started here. Father, thank you for another uh, Sunday to come and worship you, Lord, and and just uh, fill our hearts um, with your love, and also, Lord, um, have the opportunity to hear from um, a fellow uh, sister in Christ, Lord, today of her story of how she came to um, know you and how you've impacted her life and uh, maybe encourage us in all our lives as well. In your name, amen. So um, we have uh, Lena Lynch will be sharing with us this morning. Her and her husband, Kurt, have been married for 38 years and have been attending Faith Church for about one year. They have served many years on the mission field, first at the University of Illinois, Illinois, right? Illinois's? Yeah, yeah. Howard, I mean, yeah. So uh, uh, after I said it, I was thinking, now I think Inest actually does belong there. Chicago campus with International Students Incorporated from 1984 to 1997 then with ELIC in China from 1997 to 2008, finally serving on the Genoa Foundation leadership team from 2009 to 2017. So please welcome Lena. Hello. Um, as Adam said, we've been married, we will be married 38 years by this October. So my faith journey in the past 38 years is really our joint um, journey. So I wanted to recognize my most honorable husband, Kurt. <laughs> and um, then before I go on to my own story before 1980, I just wanted to share very briefly how we came together because people are always curious about, how did you meet each other? Our story was very, um, Plain. We went to college, we met, and we got married. So, but the Lord's plan for us uh, was that he brought us together because of our involvement as student volunteers with international students. Kurt was at Moody Bible Institute, and I was at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. And we will both go to the headquarters. ISI's uh, former headquarters was a ranch, Star Ranch. On, uh, by the Rockies in Colorado Springs. And my in-laws, back then in the 70s, they were recruited as retired uh, volunteers, uh, retirees, and they moved from Buffalo, New York to Colorado Springs to serve at the headquarters. As, and so during summer and winter breaks, ISI will uh, have conferences for international students across the country. And so each chapter uh, leader, each leader will be bringing uh, students to the ranch for the, those meetings. I will go up from Houston with our chapter, and there we met, but that was it, just like you meet many people at conferences. And then, as I enter into my senior year at H HBU, my uh, spiritual mentor couple, Tom and Diane Lawrence, they were preparing the seniors for life after college, and they strongly recommended that I go to, and others, to go to Moody Bible Institute because they were alumni. 
themselves and they thought it would be good for us to go for that special one-year program to prepare us for ministry. So I went and the Chicago leader, ISI uh, leader there, hosted me and drove me to Moody on registration day as Phil pulled up his station wagon by the arch. If you've been to Moody, it sits on the South Street and there's the famous arch. As we reached that point and Phil was unloading my luggage and out came Kurt. And so Phil said, wow, what timing. Kurt, come and help me with Lena's luggage. And Kurt looked at me and he said, I knew you. What are you doing here? And so he picked up my bags and he's been my beast of burden ever since. <laughs> so there's our story. <coughs> and we entered into our marriage knowing that the Lord had called us to serve with ISI full time. And since we were in Chicago, we were assigned the University of Illinois at Chicago, where Kurt received both of his master's and PhD uh, degrees. And the Lord didn't give us any physical children, but he's blessed us with tremendous amount of spiritual children in the US as well as in China. And we cannot be more thankful 38 years later. And so now I will share with you my story before, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you notice that the title of my talk today is what is a missionary after all? When we think about missionary, it's easy for us to think of like people like the great Dr. David Livingston of Africa, Amy Carmichael of India, Hudson Taylor, uh, Adoniram Judson, who was dubbed as the man who gave the Bible to the Burmese, including the Karen people group, the people group that we all know so well here in the faith neighborhood. And, but we all know that there are numerous missionaries who carry out God's com great commission just across their backyard fence with the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, <coughs> and there, Oswald Chambers said, uh, gave a definition of a missionary. A missionary is someone sent by Jesus Christ just as he was sent by God. And if that's the correct definition, then that's just about all of us here who are born again and in Christ and who live out a life of Christ. But my own otherwise idol-worshiping heathen life was forever transformed when I first heard the gospel preached by Western missionaries who came to Taiwan in the previous century. I was born and raised in Taiwan. My paternal grandmother, who lived in Hong Kong actually, made sure that my father would keep Buddhism alive in the family and asked that my parents have the goddess of mercy idol in the house properly venerated and keep up with all the required Buddhist rites at home and at a local um, temple. Do you recognize the picture? In Chinatown, everywhere in America, you see them, and people will buy them thinking, it's a pretty lady. It's the goddess of mercy idol. And um, where am I? So we grew up in a home filled with cigarettes, 
and incense smells and early, early morning religious chants. My parents faithfully carry out their Buddhist obligation and brought us all to local temples to, to perform various rites. So I grew up in a home in a world that venerated or appeased the terrifying idol gods, ghosts, and demons. My siblings grew up in the same environment, but they were quite oblivious to any adverse effect of our fear-based culture. But I was fearful and terrified of the, the demons and the ghosts. And in, in fact, I eventually developed as, as a young child uh, insomnia because I couldn't sleep. I'm, I was always waiting for the ghost to come and get me. The worst childhood experience was to hear and watch funeral processions passing by our neighborhood with, local, with loud funeral music blaring and people wailing dressed in ghostly white garments and hoods. I knew nothing but Buddhism, a, a mixture of Mahayana branch of Buddhism, Taoism, folk, and animistic beliefs. But the Lord of the whole world had a plan for me. My parents followed the Taiwan social trend of having at least one child placed in a Western-run private school to keep up their upper middle class status. And I was the one whom they put first in a Western Roman Catholic school, the Sacred Heart, and after being in a regular public school for a few years. And then they transferred me to the top Western private school, the Wesley Girls Boarding School, which was founded by Madam Chiang Kai-shek. And it was at Wesley that I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. During one of the chapel altar calls, I couldn't help but go forward to receive Christ as my God and Savior. The Western ministers led us to a church nearby to be baptized the following week. I never saw a church until then. My thought was, if this God is love, and he loved me enough to die for me, that I want to believe in him instead of the terrifying gods I knew who only punished or instilled fears in their subjects. It wasn't until years later in college when I was reading the Bible and came to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. That I fully realized that the love of God preached by those Western missionaries came into my heart and drove out fear and set me free. And when I came to Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8, I was amazed at the truths revealed in this passage. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but cannot walk nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. To make a long story short, my faith began to grow during my college years in Houston, Texas. My one brother was reached by his Christian doormates at Houston Baptist University, where we both went. This brother became a pastor 
and he led my sister to Christ the night before our wedding in our newlywed apartment in Chicago, 1980. My little brother received Christ at my pastor brother's church. Kurt led my mother to Christ when she was in her 50s. And my father received Christ three years later after witnessing the unbelievable transformation of my mother's life. He was in his 60s. Right after my mother finished praying with Kurt and me, she got up, went to her living room, and took down the Goddess of Mercy idol, which was in our home since I was a little girl. She never looked back. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So God did for our family, and including the next generation of nieces and nephews and their spouses. Amen. So um, at the beginning of this summer, Faith Story, uh, someone asked uh, the presenter a question. What is a Christian worldview? To me, the Christian worldview is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Those Western missionaries who led me and many others to Christ in Taiwan might all be in the presence of the Lord by now, but the missionary effort had yielded immeasurable fruit, of which they themselves might not have realized before they went to be with the Lord. I'm just assuming because that was a long time ago. Again, it was through one particular missionary the Lord gave me a clear call to serve him fully when I met Mrs. Jean Playfair. To me, she was one of the greatest modern-day missionaries I've ever known personally. Jean, as I follow the natives who called her Yagana, which means grandma in Manga language, was a lifelong missionary sent by SIM. Yagana's husband, as many missionaries back then, died in Nigeria of illness only seven years after they entered their mission work as a couple in Western Africa with SIM. Yagana moved back to the U.S. with her very, three very young children, but only to return shortly to Nigeria and then Niger with her children because of the verse she had on her husband's tombstone in Nigeria. Matthew 12, 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Her husband was dead, and she must continue the work they had started. By the time I was assigned to be Jean's helper as a summer short-term student from Moody Bible Institute, Jean was in her mid-60s, having already served over three decades in the heart of the Sahara Desert among the nomadic people in the Muslim nation of Niger. Uh, Niger Republic. That six-week short term 
was a life-changing experience for me as I learned, observed, and prayed with Yagana day in and day out in the scorching heat of the Sahara Desert. As I was returning back in the U.S. with the rest of the Moody team, I knew without a shadow of doubt that the Lord had called, placed a call on my life to serve and live a life that I witnessed in the same manner as I witnessed in that white, snow white hair, frail but seasoned missionary named Yagana. She kept me anchored in her prayer until she went to be with the Lord in the early 90s. From 1984 to just this past June 2017, Kurt and I served as full-time missionaries, first in Chicago among the international students at the University of Illinois in Chicago with ISI from 1984 to 1997, and then to the mainland China from 90, 1997 to 2008. And then we were recruited by a China mission organization based in Hong Kong to serve on their leadership team from 2009 to just now, the past June 2017. And as we said, that we have many spiritual children. By God's grace, the Lord blessed us with a very fruitful time, 20 years in China, and many of our spiritual children are serving God full-time full in China under very difficult circumstances. We returned to the U.S. last June with a plan to begin our pre-retirement savings. Our simple plan was that Dr. Kurt would just get a wonderful job and I, always a housewife, could finally begin to dream about a house with white picket fence, walk-in closet, two bathrooms, his and her sinks. But the Lord obviously was laughing so hard that every full-time job interview Kurt went was a shut door. But instead, he blessed us and led us in his own way. He placed us happily in Ashtonburg Apartments of Nora, which is right next, next, next door to Faith Church. And so here we are at Faith. And also, but he, he was kind. He threw in our, in our apartment, he threw in the patio for me. So I can plant flowers in the summer and fake Dollar Tree flowers in the winter. But living in Ashtonburg, brought us right in the midst of refugees and new immigrants. So last July, um, before we woke up from our 20 year away from America stupor, we were uh, talked into signed up as conversation facilitators at FIAC here at Faith. And there we realized that many of those families actually live in Ashtonburg. And which by the way, we thought maybe that was what Ash Ashtonburg took us in because we look just like refugees. <laughs> we no rental history or, you know, like 20 years not here. So, but anyways, there we were with um, our refugee families. So it sounds, seems like our missionary living is not over yet. There's <laughs> much work to be done, plenty of opportunities. But what is missionary living? but to walk with God, devote ourselves to him, his word, and then to carry out his commitments in our own personal lives and his great commission among the people whom we have daily um, influence.
our neighbors, our colleagues. And if that is missionary living and that is what a missionary is about, then that includes all of you here in this room, which has, you have been such an unbelievable inspiration to occur to me since we came back. 20 years away from America, coming back, it's not very easy. And yet God placed us right here and brought us to Faith Church and met all of you missionaries living your lives before us. And that gave us strength to continue on now that in our elderly age, that never mind the retirement plan, that we'll just keep on going by God's grace and with you living your lives before us, partnering with us right here in the faith community. The Lord gave us a passage, um, which I will leave you today. And it is in Isaiah 58, verses 10 to 12. And if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Amen. When I was a sophomore or junior, my, my family moved around. We actually lived in Vietnam, and uh, that was where I went to high school. And then uh, my parents lived in Indonesia. And when I was a ju junior, I think, uh, th they moved to uh, Houston to join up with us. No, they, I never met my grandpa. Uh, he died when I was a little girl, and w I met my grandma many times in Hong Kong, um, but I didn't. I was already a believer, but I didn't share with her. And she died uh, when I was a sophomore in college. We ourselves have only met students and colleagues who knew something about a God, but couldn't really understand it by the time we came to know them. But in Xinjiang, which is a far northwestern province that borders many Central Asian countries, that's a hardcore Muslim uh, region of China. Our workers there regularly reported that many of them who had dreams and visions of Christ revealing himself to them. But interestingly enough, you mentioned Nanning. That is the capital city of Guangxi province, one of the poorest provinces in China. And in that province, God has what he told Elijah, the 7,000 people. There are many, many missionary efforts being done in that province, including our people. And they had just, 2016, Kurt and I had the privilege uh, to go there uh, to be at the recognition ceremony, everything was private, very quiet. A 14-year work of translation of the Zhuang Bible, because Guangxi is a Zhuang people's group 
autonomous region province. And that New Testament Bible plus a few books in the Old Testament were finally translated into their language and published in uh, 2016. And that, that, that scripture is being carried into the mountainous regions, into the unreachable places in Guangxi province. But their effort is only one of many. But you don't hear about it because it's very, very it's highly secure place from the, our point of view. So you don't hear about the reports. But we had the privilege to be in many mountainous regions in Guangxi province and met uh, the natives. And they knew whether they believe or not, but they have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it just like what Elijah was so discouraged, God said, there are 7,000 people who had not bowed down to Baal. God has his people planted. And maybe one day one of you young people will be one of those people who will go. Well, in overseas as well as here, just getting to know our refugee neighbors and students at FIAC, again, the Lord amazes us in that people are hungry they're thirsty for something that they're not experiencing, whether they're from Burma or the Middle East or just Americans, like our American neighbors next door before they moved away. And how eager they would listen if you would only just share with them, but share in such a way that they could understand. And so we have to be in the word of God ourselves first and not just jam the you know, four points, three points down people's throat, but rather to open our eyes. I think we don't open our eyes enough to observe people around us and discern where they're at. And when we open our mouth to share, that we will be able to share with them in such a way that it will resonate with them immediately. And then you will be surprised how hungry they are. And we found them even here at Ashton Brook all the time. So our prayer is that, and I know many of you here do that, uh, constantly being aware of those around us. I remember, was it Mark West, who shared the first time uh, in June, as he lives out his um, Christ-centered life, constantly being aware of who is around him, whether at restaurant or on the airplane. And really, we just need to ask God to give us boldness. And then he'll open the door. It'll be out in paperback, $9.99. <laughs> it's a Bible series that I have developed for our mission many years ago. And it's, uh, the Quran does mention many parts of the Old Testament, including the birth of Jesus, but of course, from their version. And because I was conversing with those passages. I brought them out, and she was a devout Muslim, so she knew exactly what, where those passages are, uh, were from, and then we look into the scripture. But then it was through various stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, and brought them out to compare to what the Quran said about Abraham, what the Quran said about Abraham sacrificing Isaac instead of Ishmael and so on and so forth. But finally, the last story before she finally turned her life to Christ was from the, um, was that first king or Samuel, I can't remember, it must be king, when uh, Jonathan, D 
died, and David wanted to be good to the house of Saul and asked them, anybody left? And then only the crippled son was brought out. And King David asked him to come and sit at the king's table. And when we came through, studied through that story, and you know, see, Swallow has been a cripple at two years old when she fell, just like Jonathan's son fell. Her eyes grew so big. At the end of that story, that was the end of a long series of studies. She said, Miss Lena, I want to sit at Jesus' table. It was the most glorious moment, but only God can do such thing. But through his word, through his word. So you're not, it is coming out? No, Joe. But if you're my good friend, then maybe I'll share the notes with you. Finish? I think it's almost 10 o'clock. 